This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. Another busy week, lots to talk about. And you have just come back from America, haven't you? I was in America, out at Harvard Monday and Tuesday. I've been a fellow at the Kennedy School of Government for the last nine years and I go out once a semester, meet lots of students. We did a seminar, guess what, on regional policy. We discussed our paper again this weekend. Do you uh, insist on your students calling you professor? Absolutely not. No one ever calls me professor other than That's you. not true. I've been in one of your seminars and they called you professor. It was the first time and you picked it up and it's really annoying. How about you? Where have you been this week? I was in Madrid and, you know, I saw for the first time in my life the greatest anti-war painting ever, probably, and that's Guernica by Picasso, which is, I guess, quite appropriate given all that's happening in the world. But I have a terrible confession to make. I've seen many pictures of this, and I've always assumed that they've been black and white pictures of a colour painting. But when you actually go and see the painting, it's in black and white. I felt like a bit of a chump standing there in front of this black and white painting. Oh, that's why it's black and white. You went all the way to Madrid to see a painting? Well, we were doing some business there as well. Uh, Of course. One of your other jobs. We've also just come, uh, the two of us, from a memorial service um, for Samit Desai, who was a brilliant Reuters journalist, went on to work for RBS and also for Brunswick. And um, there was some brilliant speeches and stories. We're going to tell one of the stories later on in the programme because it was such a cool story. But first of all, we're going to get on with the serious business. What have we got to talk about this week? We've got to talk about the COVID inquiry, which... um, hit the front pages this week with those WhatsApp messages. We're also going to clearly have to reflect on um, the continuing challenges that Keir Starmer is facing politically in dealing with um, the terrible situation in Israel-Gaza. And then coming up next week in British politics is the King's Speech. That's not a movie. That's when the government sets out its plans for all its laws in the coming year. And It's already being talked about as yet another moment for a Sunak relaunch. So we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about the fact that the king's giving it. Will that make it any different from when the queen used to give that speech? And then the the thing you may not have noticed, the Monetary Policy Committee has not raised interest rates. But in fact, 
financial conditions, monetary policy, the interest rates we're paying have gone up in recent weeks, even though interest rates were on hold and they've gone up because of what's been happening in America. And we're going to talk about how the American economy and the American bond market is changing the economic political situation, the housing market here in Britain. We'll talk about that later. First of all, though, we're going to start with the COVID inquiry. A week ago, George, you said that you had wind, that there were going to be some shocking uh, in fact, you said misogynistic messages at the COVID inquiry. And uh, I mean, you were right. Uh, did, did it take you by surprise? Was it was it worse than you saw, thought or, or not? I think one of the questions you have to ask yourself about the COVID inquiry is, is it confirming what you already knew? Or is it telling you something you didn't know? And I felt the hearings this week with Dominic Cummings and various civil servants like Helen McNamara, Simon Stevens, who ran the NHS, they're basically telling us what we already knew, which was number 10 under Boris Johnson was completely shambolic. And the handling at the highest level of COVID in those early months, not in the hospitals, not the incredible job being done by nurses and doctors across Britain, but in number 10 in the cabinet office, it was completely farcical. And you had all these different factions and groups all operating around Boris Johnson, who's like a kind of Henry VIII character, completely capricious with his court. And it didn't tell me something I didn't already know, but it confirmed what I always thought, that that was probably one of the weakest premierships in British history. And if the Conservatives think that this is all just now a subject for history, I'm afraid that's probably not the case. The, the memories are being you know, stirred up again by this COVID inquiry. I wondered uh, whether Boris Johnson, after uh, he was appointed, would become a unifying figure. He could have done that. And I remember hearing the news that he had appointed as his chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, and this sinking feeling in my stomach that this would turn out to be a catastrophic decision for him and for the country. And uh, look, we know all about uh, Dominic Cummings' um, kind of wildness and his his views. And... Uh, what we discovered, as you sort of prefigured, is that he doesn't understand what misogyny is. I mean, for him to say in explaining using uh, the C word and actually talking about the senior civil servant Helen McNamara as a C word and then to be asked about that and to say, I said worse about men. I mean, not to understand that there is something about using the C word about women, which is deeply, deeply misogynistic. And she called him out the next day and said that there was not only that aggression in Downing Street from Dominic Cummings, but also more widely, but that meant that they didn't really understand the way in which the pandemic was impacting upon women in our country, women in the workplace, women in the home. I mean, for all the idea that Dominic Cummings was a great strategist, he did not understand the British people and he is a misogynist, and that was shown in black and white this week. Well, I think there's an interesting theory about the Johnson premiership, which is why is he such an unsuccessful prime minister when he was a pretty successful mayor of London? Now, you could say, well, obviously, being prime minister is a much harder job. But the truth is that when he was mayor of London, he found always a deputy who would do most of the hard work and kind of organise Johnson and organise his thoughts and, and bring out, in many ways, the better sides of Johnson's character, the kind of optimism and the generosity. 
So there was a guy called Simon Milton, who sadly died, who had been the leader of Westminster Council. There was another guy called Eddie Lister. Arguably, Linton Crosby played a key influence when he was mayor of London as well, the Tory strategist. When he becomes prime minister, he doesn't have anyone like that. He chooses Dominic Cummings. By the way, he chooses Cummings after he's won the Tory leadership contest. And the first couple of years, that early period of the Johnson premiership, you know, it is a Faustian pact with Cummings that ends in tears ultimately for Johnson. And he never, although he tries other chiefs of staff after he fires Cummings, you know, he never really gets back onto the front foot again. And of course, you know, the country pays a heavy price as the inquiry is finding out because it's such a dysfunctional Downing Street. And, you know, David people Cameron... Pay you, but people pay with their lives. Well, we'll find out what the inquiry says, but quite possibly people paid with their lives. And I've known Dominic Cummings for a long time. You know, he first turned up as when I was a kind of junior backbench MP and he was Ian Duncan Smith's sort of new guy that uh, was uh, telling the Tory He's party. He's worked for all the great Tory leaders. He has. But, you know, David Cameron called him a career psychopath. And um <laughs> has to be said, he, he does tend to also destroy the careers of the people he works with. Late last night on Twitter, he was lashing out against you. He tried in his evidence to draw you into the idea of there being a conspiracy. And he puts out a tweet late last night lamenting that nobody has picked up on his accusations. It's all a media conspiracy. It wasn't followed up because it's all nonsense. I mean, this is a man who his whole life is built around conspiracy theories and always has been. Um, and even though he became the, basically the most powerful person in the country, he's always railing at the, against the people who run the country. Uh, and I know what he's trying to do. He's endlessly trying to distract attention from the fact that he had more power, more responsibility than virtually anyone else in Britain at a moment of national crisis. And uh, Unfortunately, we're all paying the price for that. I think there's one important thing I would like to say, which is that when I look at this, I really worry there'll be lots of people thinking when they see these WhatsApp messages that um, for the first time, the truth about how government operates is being revealed. You know, this is how it always was. People are using the C word this and F that. Civil servants saying this about ministers and all of that. And I just don't think that's true. And I don't know what it is, whether it's about the character of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, whether it's the way in which social media has changed the way in which we interact. If you look in, you know, we've seen in recent years uh, in the police force, terrible things, competitive, nasty things being said between police officers about colleagues and about women. But this is different. I mean, the idea of Gus O'Donnell, when he was cabinet secretary, saying to somebody saying to me when I was um, working with him, his view about another cabinet minister or slagging off the prime minister in the way in which we've seen, the idea of a senior civil servant breaking the rules by bringing a karaoke machine in for a 3am party, which was illegal, and they would have known that they were breaking the rules. The idea of people being so aggressively, nastily dismissive of other people in this way, I did not see that at any time. Look, I'm not going to say there weren't tense moments and there weren't times when people said things, but the writing down with this aggression, this misogyny, I do think this is different. And I don't believe, tell me otherwise, I don't believe that's how it would have been in the Cameron Osborne years either. You know, I think people look at this coverage of 10 Downing Street and they think it's always been like that. And it was not like that in my day when I was working next door in number 11. I don't think it was like that during the new Labour years. Of course, you know, Things were tough and um, the thick of it, you know, is a pretty good characterization, you know, of the some of the aggression of that period. 
But I think people had a kind of noble calling. There was, and there was a sense of being a band of brothers and sisters trying to achieve something, even if there were divisions and factions. I think, it, you know, in the end, a fish rots from its head. And the way that Johnson created Downing Street so that everyone was operating around this central figure, the king. In fact, he called himself the world king, didn't he, once when he was younger. Uh, and no one knew where they stood. And whether you were a civil servant or a political advisor didn't make any difference to him. You had to come and bend your knee to him. You know, it, it ultimately, the biggest victim of all of that was Boris Johnson himself. It, it meant that his premiership was not a success. And, you know, he's reading now about, you know, how it actually operated in practice. But much of it, which probably was not even known to him because he was upstairs in the flat while all this was going on. And the, the style of government, the advisors who are there, the senior civil servants who are there, they're all there in the end because he chose them. And the prime minister has that clout in our system. But we rely upon the prime minister to, um, to have some standards. Well, I think what it did show... Is that there's one very important lesson, which is at the very top of the British system, because we don't have a written constitution like the United States, there is actually no constraint really on a prime minister other than that their party might get rid of them, which is what ultimately happened with Boris and, uh, of course, with Liz Truss. And you know, it turns out a prime minister can rewrite the ministerial code because he's the author of it. He can't be judged against that code because he is the judge of the code. He can appoint anyone he likes to the House of Lords and ignore the committee that says he can't appoint his mates. Uh, he can, you know, fire the cabinet secretary. He can fire other permanent secretaries like uh, Liz Truss fired the uh, permanent secretary at the Treasury. There is very little constraint right at the top of the system. And I think if you talk to the civil servants during that period at the heart of the COVID crisis, it was a bit like the kind of ground opening up and you realised there was no real safety net underpinning the premiership in the UK. And maybe that is going to be one of the positive consequences of the COVID inquiry and everything that happened during that period, that we will have some better constraints and proper checks and balances on unbridled premiership power. But you don't have to be there. I mean, Sajid Javid, when Dominic Cummings tried to sack all his advisers and take over essentially the chancellorship from number 10, Sajid Javid said no and resigned. And in the end, cabinet ministers, senior civil servants, they can speak out. They can walk out. In the end, it feels to me as though... They did in the end. I mean, you know, Sunak resigned ultimately as Chancellor Exchequer, and that's what brought Johnson down. That's I think true. it's... Fair. But a I long th time after the events which are being documented this week. Well, yes. And I think, I think, look, to be fair to the decision makers at the time, at every level, those at the top of the health service, those in the civil service and to the senior politicians, they were dealing with an unprecedented crisis. And it's all very well with hindsight. You're still having arguments today... Uh, I heard, you know, on the radio about some health study about the loneliness and depression that lockdown caused. And so there's still, you know, this big question of how was it right to lock the country down? What would we do in the future? And what also I think comes out in the COVID inquiry is it's pretty complicated Britain now to govern because you've got a devolved administration in Edinburgh and Nicola Sturgeon was doing her own thing. You've got you know, the Cardiff and Belfast, you've got individual mayors, Andy Burnham. Do you remember they had to negotiate with the mayor of Manchester, the government? So, you know, the days when the writ just ran from Whitehall uh, have long since gone. There's some very important learning from that, how our de facto constitution has changed. And when you reflect back on the last two or three weeks, we've talked about uh, the challenges that Keir Starmer has faced in dealing with the Israel-Gaza situation. One of the learnings 
he needs to put in place now is to understand the role that those mayors play. Because, um, you know, in the last week, he's made a speech um, setting out why he's not calling for ceasefire following the Labour mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, the Labour mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, the Labour leader in Scotland, Anna Sawa, all calling for um, that uh, ceasefire. And I think Keir will look back and reflect upon this. I mean, if you remember the Uxbridge by-election, the issue of ULES, um, the emissions charge for old cars in London was controversial. Keir Starmer and the people around him went out afterwards and had a real go publicly at the Labour Mayor Sadiq Khan for his ULES policy. I think it was at the lobby drinks at Christmas, Keir Starmer made a joke mocking Andy Burnham. And the reality is that you reap what you sow. And if you don't understand the standing and power these mayors have, and if you think that they are people you can choose to be disrespectful to, then at the point when you need them, as Keir Starmer found out this week, they might not be there. It's a pretty good rule generally in politics, but I think what the mayoral system has created is powerful figures who are not dependent on the patronage of the leader of the party. I mean, we saw that in spades when we were trying to control Boris Johnson as mayor of London and, you know, David Cameron spent a lot of effort and, and I did as well into trying to manage that relationship. And we were quite careful not to be rude about Boris Johnson during that period precisely because he had that platform and precisely because we needed to be, you know, present to the electorate one happy family. And indeed, we were a happier family than we've become as a party. Um, but and it's if, an interesting question. Even when you've got the patronage, even when you're the leader of the opposition or the prime minister and you can fire people, it's not always straightforward to hold collective responsibility, as I think no. Keir Starmer's finding, isn't he, on the, on the tragic situation in Gaza? Well, look, there's always positioning going on. And people always look in, within, historically, you look within the parliamentary party to see, you know, if the leader fell under a bus, if things didn't work out. I think Keir Starmer is in good health. I think he will be the prime minister. Um, I hope he's going to be a really good prime minister. But people are always positioning. And if you go back to 2010 in the Labour Labour leadership election, the dividing line Ed Miliband set up against his brother was how he voted on Iraq. And in 2015, the dividing line Jeremy Corbyn set up in order to win was how people voted on cuts in welfare benefits. And, uh, you know, it might be at some future point the dividing line will be, what did you say on the Israel-Gaza ceasefire? And, you know, Andy Burnham, Sadiq Khan, maybe there's some positioning going on. So just to explain, I think, to people listening, Keir Starmer, you, you were the first to say a couple of weeks ago, first that I'd heard anyone say, look, he's going to have a problem over holding the Labour Party together on what's going on. There's a huge amount of sympathy, of course, for what's happened in Israel and the terrible plight of the hostages there and Israel's right to defend itself. But this is going to start to fracture the Labour coalition, you know, all the people who support the Labour Party. And maybe he was a bit slow, but he gave what I thought was actually a pretty good speech just a couple of days ago, making it clear that he was not calling for a ceasefire. While I understand calls for a ceasefire at this stage, I do not believe that it is the correct position now because a ceasefire always freezes any conflict in the state where it currently lies. And as we speak, that would leave Hamas with the infrastructure and the capability to carry out the sort of attack we saw on October the 7th. 
attacks that are still ongoing. So I think that is a very clear exposition of why you shouldn't necessarily support a ceasefire. I don't support a ceasefire for exactly the reason that Keir Starmer spelt out. But that's also laying down the law to his own party. And yet, even since that speech was given in the last couple of days, you've had shadow ministers such as Afzal Khan, uh, the shadow uh, trade minister, coming out and openly disagreeing with uh, Starmer. So do we think Starmer has got a real problem now in his hand? Discipline in the Labour Party is seriously fracturing after having put on such an impressive show of unity in recent months. It seems a long time ago since that United Labour conference. And I think um, there's two things we've talked about in the last couple of weeks about Keir Starmer's position. One, that he was slow to set out a position. But two, that he didn't do enough to try and look beyond the immediate issues to try and talk positively about what may happen in the future in the way that um, President Biden is, but also to show enough emotional engagement on the issues. I thought the line that he set out in his speech this week was the right line, absolutely. Um, And he needs discipline now in his front bench to take that uh, forward, carefully stipulated that line. It can evolve as the situation evolves. The trouble is that... um, the divides are already there. We talked about the mayors who've been out disagreeing with that line, Labour mayors. There are um, a large number of front benches who have said the opposite of Keir Starmer's line over the last um, 10, 15 days. And if you're slow and already people have established their positions, that makes it harder. And there will be lots and lots of Labour MPs, including on the front bench, with large Muslim populations in their seats who are very worried politically, as well as people who feel morally and emotionally about it. And I do think Keir Starmer has now got a very difficult situation. Of course, he's got to establish discipline. There's got to be collective responsibility. If you look at the way in which Suella Braverman keeps deviating from the Sunak line, well, you think, I know she's doing that and why is he putting up with it? Well, but they are 13 years into government and that's a sign of decay. Keir Starmer's not even got to government yet. It's too early for decay. He needs unity. And he will want every shadow cabinet member to absolutely toe that line. So I think if a shadow cabinet member now steps outside the ceasefire line, in my view, very hard for his authority to be maintained unless they then leave the shadow cabinet. But when you look more widely across um, the front bench and the wider parliamentary party, his political management task here, having come to this late, is if he starts to, you know, pick people off example by example, every one of them in some sense becomes a political martyr. And he doesn't want to do that. It opens up divides when he's trying to shut things down. You saw in the Times today, the story which says that Keir Starmer is going to take this issue case by case. And there have been times in the past when prime ministers or leaders have made exceptions. I mean, Boris Johnson was allowed to be away for the Heathrow vote when he was foreign secretary. Ruth Kelly famously was allowed to deviate from a three-line whip by being away on the embryo bill research in 2008. So you can but make exceptions. Come on, these, so these are big differences. So first of all, someone has resigned, been forced to resign from a front bench over Gaza, but it's on the Tory side. That's so right. there's a Tory PPS, uh, Paul Bristow, who had to resign for calling for a ceasefire. So discipline is being forced on the Tory side, which has not been the yeah. usual story in British politics in a uh, recent period. And I think, you know, I think back to the 1996-1997 period, the last time Labour was in opposition and they were approaching a general election, it was famously a very, very tough disciplined operation, almost to a fault. You know, the Labour MPs had their pages. 
And if they deviated, then Mandelson or Campbell or someone would end their political careers or give them a massive dressing down. Fast forward 13 years, and the next time Labour looks like they may come into government, and you've got collective responsibility breaking down. And it's all very well to say, Ed, well, I'm going to draw the line at the shadow cabinet, but there are shadow ministers out there, as the one I just quoted, Afzal Khan, openly disagreeing with a speech that was given only 24 hours ago. But there's there's 15 or 16 front benches who've said the same thing as Afzal Khan. And um, for Kia to remove all of those in kind of one go would be... Um, you know, Impossible, basically. I mean, massively divisive and sort of and it absolutely makes it even more his problem. He can sort of start with Avzal Khan and make him the first person who loses their job, unlike all the others. Not totally clear where the principle is in that. If I was him, I would think it's quite hard now for me to enforce this on the whole front bench retrospectively. I would think I've got a huge problem with Avzal Khan, and uh, but that might be the person who I have to make my individual exception. But what I cannot have is anybody in the shadow cabinet stepping outside that line. Because as, as you say... So you make a virtue of necessity and you say, I'm drawing the line with the shadow cabinet. Well, I don't like saying that because you can't give a signal that the whole of the rest of the front bench can deviate from my line. So um, so that, that's not very comfortable. He's, he certainly can't go back mm. and be retrospective. You know, this isn't only about the Parliamentary Labour Party. It's more generally about cohesion in our country. And he will be worried that at a time when, let's be honest, anti-Semitic attacks are on the on the rise, where there's a lot of division happening in our streets, he will be thinking, you know, I need to try and close this. He wants his speech to close uh, this down rather than open this about, up. I'd be worrying about that. But look, And it's only going to get worse. Right? His leadership I mean, requires discipline on this. And it's only going to get worse because of the unfolding tragedy in the Middle East and uh, the situation with uh, Israel finds itself in, trying to hunt down those who inflicted that pain. But of course, people being killed in the process. Of course. And look, you, um, as President Biden has showed, you can be supporting Israel against a ceasefire, but also think that humanitarian pauses and aid should be happening immediately and be critical of some of the things Israel has or will do and to actually be very direct about their obligations in international law. If I was Keir Starmer, that's where I would want to be. I wouldn't want to have a rolling internal row with the Labour Party, but that's what he's got. And I think that's going to carry on. So Rishi Sunak will have felt he's had a pretty successful week this week with the AI summit, the Artificial Intelligence Summit that's been held at Bletchley Park. And next week, it's the King's speech. This is when he gets to set out, not the King, but the <laughs> Prime Minister Sunak, who will write this speech and get King Charles to read it out. And I guess the single biggest test of this moment is going to be, certainly to my mind, is Rishi Sunak going to live up to the promise he made at the party conference to be the big change candidate who's going to upend 30 years of political consensus and short-termism. And that's how, certainly, I think we should judge the success of this moment. I always found it really hard when we were in government to get excited about uh, what we used to call the Queen's speech, and now, as you said, the King's speech, because of um, King Charles is on the throne. It's the point where Parliament is opened. It normally proceeds like a few weeks of quiet and recess, and it's like an exciting new starting moment. Well, it's been quite busy in politics in the last few weeks. But it's not like the budget or the autumn statement where the Chancellor commands the whole stage and delivers the budget speech in a way which really makes a lot of 
kind of sense to ordinary people will find out if they're going to pay more tax or less, what's going to happen to things which affect their lives. It's setting out the legislation programme for, for the year ahead and the detail of all the bills, I mean, quite exciting for civil servants in Whitehall, much harder to communicate if you are the Prime Minister. And then, of course, you've got so much else going on. You've got carriages and the monarch on the throne and all these people in fancy dress in the House of Lords from embassies around the world. And then lots of kind of quirky speeches and funny speeches in Parliament. That moment where um, the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition, Chancellor, the Shadow Chancellor, you and I had to do this. You have to pray through together from the Commons to the Lords. So many things distracting from the main message moment. It's it's not sure if it actually works that well for the government. Well, first of all, where's your sense of romance and tradition? Come on. It's quite a fun. It's a carnival day in the House of Commons. Uh, when, when I first was an no, MP, like you got carnival. some Tory. Some, some you, carnival's <laughs> dodgems <laughs> and not, hot dogs <laughs> and candy floss. It's not it's not a carnival. It's some, like, some Tory it's really MPs boring. when I when I first arrived, we all dressed up in tails and everything for the special day, and you, you know, it's quite just like the old days. Just like the old days, <laughs> and uh, I, I think you know, for a, if you're a big reforming government, uh, oh, now I get it. Right, that's a Bullingdon Club reference. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry, I'm bringing, you were so slow there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, carry bring, on. I, I'm not going to bring the Bullingdon Club don't, tales don't, in to show you. I don't, I don't know why you raised the Bullingdon Club, but now you have. No, no, let's move on. Move right, on. moving on. So, you, so there you are. You're in tales. Are you well, did, did champagne for breakfast? Were you up all night? No, we're talking about the King's speech. Oh, fine, fine, okay. We're talking about something much grander, the royalty. Okay. If you think about the tradition of the day, I think it kind of speaks to, you know, Britain's long history. For a big reforming government, the Queen's speech or the King's speech was really important. You know, if you think of Clement Attlee's King's speech or Margaret Thatcher's Queen's speeches, they would have been stuffed full of the famous laws that changed our country. And preceded by a big fight between departments to get into get, get to, the it's a limited, the... It's a limited slot, right? Exactly. There's, a, there's only so many people can go on the bus. Only so many laws can go through Parliament in the coming year. So I think for a reforming government, it's a pretty important moment. And I thought... You know, the early couple of years of the Cameron coalition, you know, we used the Queen's speech for for real political purpose. Where I think it's, it's not always like the budget, though, is it? No, it's where, where I agree with you is it's always been hopeless as a moment to try and tell the country something about the government because you know it's so it's too abstract. These are laws that are going to be passed at some point in the next year. It does set up the political battlefield or part of the battlefield for the year ahead. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Sunak government, as well as trying to prove that it's the change, prove that he's upending the consensus, as I say, also lays some political traps for Labour. So there'll be laws to roll back the green agenda. Hard one for Starmer. Is he going to side with the environmentalists or with the cost of living issues, if that's the way you see this uh, contest? I wouldn't be surprised on crime and the like if there aren't sort of tough uh, sentences for uh, you know people who commit uh, violent rapes or particularly horrific domestic murders. That's going to try and bolster the law and order credentials of the Conservatives. I'd be interested if there's something on hate crime and uh, you know those pro-Palestinian crowds. Some of those people who've been saying things about Hamas and the police chief in London has said, "I don't have the powers to do with it." So they'll be setting up various traps, but none of this is going to really happen in time for the uh, make an impact to the general election. And what I mean is the laws aren't going to be passed and active in our communities by the time people who are going to be asked to vote. So this is, you know, the last big Queen's or King's speech, sorry, of this period of government. And it's going to, I think, therefore have an air of unreality about it. A bit of fin de siècle about it. It's, it's so easy just to get distracted by 
the trivial, you know, do Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves look like they're getting on when they walk through? I, I mean, used to enjoy our little uh, stroll. From, you, we, you walk from after the king has finished his speech, or in our case it was the queen, and she parades off. Uh, you, you know, you tend to pair up with your opposite number and you walk back from the House of Lords chamber in back into the House of Commons in front of the TV cameras. Uh, and I was always told by my advisors, you know, you've got to look very serious, George, because, you know, it's very difficult things happening in the economy. You can't, you can't be looking like you're, you're having a laugh. I think we were serious. Look, to be honest, what used to happen when we walked through is it's the same as Primus's questions. I would turn to you and say, this guy Cameron, is he up to it? And you would say, I know, but Ed Miliband's worse. And uh, we'd walk through basically... Well, I was right, wasn't I? Well, I mean, maybe I was. <laughs> that was uh, We used to sit across in PMQs. We're going to have our argument again. <laughs> we were sitting across in PMQs. And I would say to him, he doesn't know the answer to the questions, George. And I would say, yeah, look, you should have had... You should be doing it, Ed. Why have you let this chump do it? There was one year when you didn't walk with me. I, well, I, was, a bit, I, was, a bit, I was a bit affronted by it's this. It's a bit of a... Scr- after the uh, Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition, and of course the coalition, we had to let, you know... Nick Clegg, president of Meta, go uh, ahead. Um, so sometimes I end up... He would really care about that. He's one of the few people who would care about being in protocol order, I reckon. Well, president Nick Clegg turns out to be much more powerful than deputy prime minister Nick president Clegg. President of Facebook, Clegg. Yes, indeed. But the, the thing you said um, about uh, the different agendas and the traps they might set, and you mentioned the green agenda, that's an interesting one. I was out at Harvard uh, this week, as I said earlier, turns out rather a lot of the students out there at the Kennedy School are listening to our podcast. And um, popular in Harvard Yard, that's pop- what we need to hear. Popular in Harvard Yard and around the world, and so inspired are they by listening to our podcast that uh, we had some questions sent. Here's one of them. Hi, Ed and George Hugh here. I'm a student at the Harvard Kennedy School. Long time listener, first time caller. I had a quick question about the King's speech next week. The king is famously environmentally friendly and pro-green in terms of his own um, mindset. I was wondering if you think that Rishi's potential plans to ditch some of his net zero targets in the upcoming king's speech could cause any tensions. I think the interesting thing is that no one really ever knew what Queen Elizabeth's political opinions were, partly, to be fair, because she became queen so young, whereas people know what King Charles thinks. Now, it's a fiction in British politics that it's the king's speech. It's actually written by the civil servants and by the prime minister and signed off by the cabinet. So the king just reads out this text that's put in front of him. But if in that text, he has to say, Charles has to say, we are going to essentially water down the green commitments of this country, row back from some of the promises we've made on electric cars or energy efficient boilers and the like, I think people are going to look very closely at Charles at his facial expression, and it's going to be quite an awkward moment. It's going to, I mean, he, I'm sure, will handle it uh, very professionally, but you can imagine on the news it being clipped, and it's just going to make it jar a bit in a way that you would... I mean, sometimes Queen Elizabeth would use sort of jargony like new Labour words. I remember when we got her to say Northern, Northern Powerhouse. I was very proud of that. Hardworking but, family, she said a few we, times. <laughs> yeah. But I think on the green issue, people will know Charles doesn't really believe in this. Well, look, he undoubtedly has strong opinions. I know in the time when I was Secretary of State for Education, and we had lots of meetings. He wrote me letters. Um, we did visits uh, together. And so he cares about lots of things, including the Green Agenda. He will take his constitutional role very seriously. It's what were these job. letters? These are the famous letters. You, yeah, got one, he, you got one of the famous Charles letters. I had loads of letters from him. But I had dinner with him to discuss his views about education, just me and him. And so, um, yeah, many times. And that, that was perfectly proper. He's, I think, been 
much more careful since he's assumed the throne. And he will be very careful indeed, because his constitutional role is to read out the speech from his government. But I think you are completely right that uh, if you're smart in number 10, you would have thought very hard about this speech. There was a front page story in The Observer a few days ago about how, you know, King's speech to um, double down on retreat on green agenda. I can't remember the exact headline. But you are right. King Charles is the kind of person who I think... um, who maybe, you know, there are amplifiers and kind of absorbers when it comes to communication. I think if he's reading out something he doesn't like, even if he sees it, it's totally proper that he should read it out. The chance of there being a sort of an eyebrow raised or a bit of a cough or a bit of a pause, and um, it's quite high. So I hope they've thought about this speech. Well, they have now conceded and allowed him to go to the COP talks, which was one of the stupider decisions of the government that they blocked King Charles going to an earlier Green Summit. And... You know, I'm not the most ardent royalist out there at all, but I think the way he's handling himself on this state visit this week in Kenya, which is not easy for a British monarch to go to Kenya with all the history of Britain's colonial involvement there and the suppression of the uh, Mau Mau and the uh, you know torture of uh, Kenyans who were fighting against British rule. Really tricky subjects. And he is, it's been very, very deftly handled, I think. The very fact it's not created the same kind of noise that happened when, you know, very innocently, I'm sure, Prince William and Kate tried to pull off that trip to the Caribbean a couple of years ago. And it got, you know, there were all sorts of unfortunate kind of pictures and it looked like it was a bit old fashioned. I think this, this trip to Kenya has been a model of how to handle a difficult situation well and have all the pomp of royalty but have a contemporary feel to it. I agree. I think King Charles has actually handled um, this first year with kind of great skill. And let's be honest, in very difficult circumstances because what's been happening um, with his um, his sons and his, his younger son. You and I have had the opportunity to, to meet the royal family very many times. As privy councillors, we have to be very careful because um, it's not for us to reveal the details. You better of, uh, explain to our listeners what this particular club is. The privy council is this very, very historic group going back many hundreds of years of advisors to the monarch. And you can't be a cabinet minister, a secretary of state, unless you are a privy councillor. So we all go at the beginning of our time as a cabinet minister. Some people become a privy councillor. They're not a cabinet minister, but you go and swear an oath um, to the monarch and in Buckingham Palace. And you kiss his or her hand. You I had do. to kiss the Queen's hand, literally. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I was like, it's it like out of a sort of medieval play. But look, you cannot reveal, we cannot reveal. I mean, the truth is that um, Her Majesty the Queen every now and then did say things politically which were kind of interesting and in the Privy Council, but those are things which um, obviously must remain secret. But um, I don't think I'm breaking your confidence in saying that she also had opinion on wider cultural things. Uh, I was at the Privy Council drinks before Christmas with Her Majesty. There's about five or six of us, and we weren't going to talk about politics. And so I said to her, will you be racing on Boxing Day? And she said that she had um, horses running. I can't remember if it was Ascot or Newbury. She said, but she wouldn't be there. Um, She'd be watching from Sandringham. And I said, so you'll be watching on Channel 4? Yes, she said. And I said, so do you watch The Morning Line? The Morning Line was the Saturday morning television show, which was on Channel 4. And she said, I'll watch the race in the afternoon, but I can't watch The Morning Line. I just can't watch it. And I said, why, Your Majesty? And she said, I can't stand that man, John McCrick. He was the guy with the big mutton the chops. The guy with the big... And she, now he... he, he um, this kind of struck a bit of a chord to me because he was also the guy, if you remember, who who upstaged Robin Cook's funeral in 2005 by doing a sort of anti-Iraq speech which got the crowds to cheer and 
caused huge offence to the family and to um, Gordon Brown and many others in, in the church. Anyway, it turned out Her Majesty the Queen loves horse racing, but she did not like John McCrook. Rest, God rest oh, both of their souls. You heard it here first on you Political heard Currency. It here first. She did. I once had lunch with her. And right in the middle was a big gold cup, which was the Ascot Gold Cup, which her horse had won. And she was incredibly proud of that, rightly so. And the only time she ever directly interfered in politics, I think I can also tell this story, was I was at a state dinner and she came up to me and she said, the chief of the defence staff is unable to answer my question. He told me to go and speak to the defence secretary. I went to see the defence secretary and he told me to come and speak to you. So I'm Asking you, you're not going to close, are you, the Highland Bagpipe School of the British Army? And I was like, of course not, Your Majesty. So the next day I get into the Treasury. I said, is there a bagpipe school? And for God's sake, tell me we're not closing it down. And uh, the Treasury didn't know, or my private office didn't know immediately, and they scurried on. They said, yes, apparently there's a kind of Highland Music School as part of the Army bands, and we are making some cuts to those and I said well we're not anymore <laughs> <laughs> I immediately sent a message back to the palace that uh, she could be reassured that the uh, the pipers of the British Army would remain well trained keep the pipers piping very good coming up we're going to talk about uh, the Bank of England's decision not to raise interest rates but the fact that in fact the American economy is the real reason why our interest rates have been going up and the housing market slowing down impacting upon the ability of everybody to afford their mortgage or to sell their home if that's what they want to do. We'll talk about that next. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back. So today, the Bank of England has kept interest rates at 5.25%. No great surprise there. This is what uh, Andrew Bailey said. Our increases in interest rates are working to bring inflation back to the 2% target. So today, we have voted to maintain bank rate at 5.25%. Monetary policy remains restrictive. Ed, is Governor Bailey completely correct there? Is it the Bank of England that is helping to bring inflation down or is it in fact events on the other side of the Atlantic? Well the Bank of England's rate rises this year have definitely slowed the economy down. They've now not raised interest rates for the last two months but actually over that period 
in fact, financial conditions, monetary policy, the rates people are paying for their mortgages are still rising. And the reason is because of what's been happening in America rather than in Britain. I mean, so all- just to explain that. So people, you, I think people think when they go to the bank or get your mortgage, that that number is set by the Bank of England. It might not be exactly the same, it might be a bit more than the Bank of England's base rate, but it's it's the Bank of England who controls interest rates in Britain. But the point you're making is, in fact, the influence of the American economy and American interest rates is huge on this country. Well, what matters is not the interest rate today, but if you are borrowing for one, three, five years ahead, the interest rates you pay. And this comes back to something that people call the bond market, or here in Britain, the gilt market. The lowest cost of borrowing is what the government has to pay to borrow money rather than us as mortgage holders. So borrowers on our behalf to pay for the hospitals and the All army of those things. and the schools and, and whatever. And at the moment, there's huge amounts of borrowing by America and Britain. So if you are a mortgage holder or a business, whatever you pay to borrow money will be more than the government is paying. And then the other thing is that the American economy tends to underpin the rest of the world. And what you've seen over this year is American interest rates, the American bond market rising month by month throughout the year, including in the last month. And the reason is because the American economy has been going going really strongly. Inflation in America has been high. And that booming economy requires interest rates to go up. And if the Federal Reserve isn't doing enough, then the bond markets think, well, they may have to do more later. And therefore, they push up the, the underlying interest rates. And that has meant that the financial conditions around the world have also been tightening. So the European Central Bank last week didn't raise interest rates, but they complained that actually interest rates are still rising across Europe because of America. And similarly here in Britain, even though the Bank of England didn't raise interest rates this month or last month, interest rates have actually gone up. Bond yields have risen here in Britain in the last month. So when you look at the slowing housing market, falling house prices, the fact we're paying more for mortgages, that is not only what the Bank of England's doing, it's also the backwash of the American economy impacting us and other countries around the world. So I think what's interesting is we're very used to essentially what happens in Britain is also happening in America and it's also happening in Europe. It's true during the financial crash. And it's interesting on inflation. We all thought, well, we're all in the same boat. America's got inflation. Europe's got inflation. UK's got inflation. But in fact, although all three economies, the European economy, UK economy, and the US economy have suffered inflation, there are different causes of that inflation. And in America, it's caused by a much, much stronger economy than we've got here in Britain or in Europe. So it's pretty striking. We had figures this week which showed the American economy is growing at almost 5%. I mean, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt would give their right arm for a growth of 5%. And in Britain, we're talking about it potentially being a recession and it's very flat in Europe too. And there's been this real divergence between the strength of the American economy and the weakness of the British and European economies. And it's not just a recent phenomenon. It's actually been happening over recent years, arguably since before the crash. And I saw this incredible figure. In 2008, the EU economy was the same size as the US economy. And now the US economy is 80% bigger than that European economy. Uh, And in Britain, we have a per capita GDP, which is now the same as the per capita GDP in the state of Mississippi, which is one of the poorest American states. So America has really pulled ahead And the Federal Reserve has 
put the tighteners on to try and contain the American economy, but it might not be the right medicine for us on this side of the Atlantic. Well, the European Central Bank were complaining about that last week, and here in Britain, it is definitely increasing the uh, the squeeze. There's another difference, which is in America, most people who have mortgages tend to have 30-year mortgages. You actually get the same mortgage rate for the whole lifetime of your borrowing, whereas in Britain, our interest rates are much more tied to what's happening in the here and now. So if in America, you have a rise in interest rates, the impact takes a lot longer, it's much slower. Here in Britain, it's much more fast when you have a rise in interest rates, it hits people mortgage rates much more quickly. If you look at the housing market over the last year, not only have house prices been falling across the country, but it's actually much harder to sell your house now. The average number of days to secure a buyer for somebody's house is now 59 days, compared to a year ago, 37 days. Why is it taking longer? Why are people slower to put in a bid? It's because people are thinking, well, you know, maybe house prices are going to fall a little further. Maybe if I wait, they're going to come down. Harder to get a mortgage. Harder to get a mortgage as well. Looking forward and thinking, well, you know, if interest rates are going to be falling next year, why don't I wait? So um, what's happening for homeowners, buyers and sellers, the mortgages we're paying, how easy it is to sell a house is not only being determined by what the Bank of England does, but also how the American bond market is responding to a surging American economy. We're all in it together, as you once famously said. We certainly are. And if you were, if you were sitting there in Downing Street, it's just another reminder that you think you've got all the levers on your desk. We saw that in the COVID inquiry. These people thought they were masters of the universe. But there are a lot of real-world events out there, and in this case, the strength of the American economy, which is going to have as probably as big an impact on financial conditions as we approach the general election as anything that Andrew Bailey or Jeremy Hunt can do. And one thing you quickly learn when you turn up in Downing Street is that if you want to have an influence on the global economy, you need to head to Washington, D.C. Now, we have both just come from the memorial service of a rather remarkable journalist, Sumit Desai, who died very young in his fifties, uh, and you know, tragic loss. And he was there; his, his young family were there at the church. I remember going with Sumit. He was he was the Reuters correspondent when I was chancellor. I used to go on these trips to Washington. You go to the IMF, the World Bank. It was incredibly hard because these journalists, they they wanted to know, you know, what, what's going on inside the room. You didn't feel you could tell them. And they'd take you out to the restaurant if you were the chancellor. I used to go to something called the Tabard Tavern in Washington. Uh, you know, they put a couple of glasses in you and they'd try and get a story. And there's a kind of feeding frenzy. And Sumit was always brilliant at getting the story first and using Reuters to get it out there around the world. There was, though, a brilliant story told by Damien McBride at the um, service today. He read, he read one of the uh, one of the lessons. He or... did, actually from his book. And it was the story of Samit jumping ahead of the curve in 2007 in Washington. It was the famous trip where when Gordon Brown was on the plane, it was announced that Tony Blair was going to hospital for a heart operation. And in order to um, to not make that the story, Downing Street said, and Tony Blair will also be serving a full third term, which was not what Gordon Brown was expecting. So the next day, you kind of bit destabilised and he has to do a briefing for all of the Damien said he'd never seen Brown more pissed off. That is what he said. That <laughs> is McBride what he being one of his closest uh, aides. So, uh, and, and it was well, not quite as close as you, Ed, but pretty re- close. Reported back how, you know, the huge reaction. And so just as they're going in to do the huddle with the journalists, including Samit Desai, Gordon Brown is told, you know, Gordon says, what do I say about Tony Blair? And they said, well, look, you know, 
obviously we hope that the operation has gone well and he's recovering, but we don't know that yet. And therefore, you know, don't don't say that. And so Gordon um, starts to address the assembled journalists and he's supposed to talk about the British economy. And he says, before I say anything, may I just say, um, Tony Blair's operation has gone very, very well and he is in good recovery. And then carried on to do his Pretty briefing. good, pretty good Gordon Brown impression there. And First time I've heard the Ed Bull's Gordon Brown impression. You guys, you guys. <laughs> and um, then Sumit Desai, who's supposed to be there, getting the story about the economy, stands up and runs out of the room and sprints down the corridor. And five minutes later, splashes on Reuter. You know, all around the world. All around the world. Operation gone well, Blair in recovery. At this time, all the big political editors are standing in Downing Street, no news, don't know what's going on, scooped by scoop Desai, but it also causes terrible consternation in number 10 because, in fact, Tony Blair is still in the operating theatre, under the knife. Nobody knows if he's going to recover at all because they've not even finished the operation. What the hell has gone on? Why have Reuters... How does Gordon Brown and Reuters know the operation, which is unfinished, has gone well? Luckily for Gordon Brown and happily for Tony Blair and very successfully for Sumit Desai, the operation does go well. Tony Blair is then in full recovery and his scoop was the scoop of the century. But... It could have been a catastrophe. He was a lovely guy, Sumit. A lovely and guy. the whole church laughed at uh, that story. They um, did. So we should turn to questions. Here's our first one from Anna. Hi, Ed and George. Um, I was just wondering, given his controversial background, do you think that Elon Musk is the best or the right person for Sunak to be doing a live interview with? Well, I think Rishi Sunak would be really pleased that Elon Musk has turned up because the AI summit, the Artificial Intelligence Summit, he's organised this week. The biggest risk to it was that people would say it's irrelevant, the important people haven't shown. The fact that the richest man in the world, the most famous of the tech entrepreneurs, has turned up, and indeed he's interviewing Sunak on X. You know, that's you can't say the big discussions, the big people didn't show. So I think he'll be pretty pleased, and it's quite a coup for Sunak, although, of course, the trouble with dealing with someone like Musk is you don't know exactly what he's going to say. Indeed, He's got some pretty controversial views. This is what he said to Joe Rogan the other day. How could AI go wrong? Well, if, if, if AI gets programmed by the extinctionists, its utility function will be the extinction of humanity. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, particularly if... They won't even think it's bad, like that guy. Right. There's a lot of decisions that AI would make that would be very similar to eugenics. We don't know what's happened in the the Sunak-Musk conversation. Um, that's going to happen after he's finished recording. And, you know, clearly the guy Musk is um, a big global figure. But I think this is a wild decision of Rishi Sunak to invite him to come along. Can you imagine President Joe Biden, if he was asked, he would, wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. This is the guy who's not only like a big Republican, he's over the last few months associated himself with a whole series of strange QAnon-type conspiracies. And who knows what he'll say? He had a pop at the First Minister of Scotland, didn't he, this week, which he, was pretty extraordinary. He did. Who knows what he'll say next month or the month after. And to have him into Downing Street, to give him that um, platform and therefore be associated with what he then says in the coming weeks and months. Rishi Sunak was trying to put himself, you know, in the mainstream, sensible, kind of serious guy, big issue of the day, bring people together. Elon Musk, very risky. Well, if you were being unkind, you would say... That's a pretty elaborate two-day job fair for Rishi Sunak. 
uh, getting the world's top technology companies to come and uh, have a chat with him. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was the right thing to do and very sensible. And uh, I'm not sure I think that's, it's, I'm not sure I that's think how you should use the office of prime minister, really, to kind of do your <laughs> do your pre-job search. I think it's great. As I've said before, we said last week, I think this is what Rishi Sunak really cares about. And uh, I think he has made an impact and getting people like Musk to turn up. Uh, shows that it has been relevant and been noticed. Okay, so I think we disagree on that. Uh, Let's finish with a question from Nick. Hi, George, Ed. I'm really enjoying the podcast. My question is, why don't politicians give straight answers to questions? While I've enjoyed watching different members of the political class squirm when being interviewed on TV, I'd like to see some straight talking and candour if trust is to be won. That's something I'd vote for. Well, Nick, the truth is that sometimes a straight answer to a straight question gets you fired, which is why you have to be quite careful in politics, because the question is not usually a completely innocent, open question. It's it's usually got a point to it that's trying to push you into a position which is either breaks collective responsibility, you know, Chancellor, what do you really think of this, even though you're bound by what you've agreed with your colleagues in your cabinet, or it's forcing you to you know, accept a one particular statistic has gone in the wrong direction for you, which you don't want to confront because you would say other things are going in my direction. But here's the thing. In my experience, politicians don't lie. Now, of course, there are one or two exceptions. We've been talking about them earlier on in this podcast. But generally, for a politician, if you're caught lying, that is the end of your career or a sackable offence. And so they might, you know, manoeuvre around a question. They may not directly answer the question. They may come up with an answer to a different question. Uh, and that will look like evasiveness because they won't lie. And if they tell the truth, that will quite often lead to their dismissal or lead to a whole load of political trouble for them. But it's also the case that not every straight answer is a, a simple yes or no. And uh, it's an old House of Commons a trick to say, you know, do you agree with this, yes or no? And you see that in sort of clickbaity journalism these days. Um, often people will try and say, you know, give us a straight answer, yes or no. There are some questions which don't have a yes or no answer because the world is complicated and questions are hard. And I think most voters are sophisticated and they can understand that this simple answer isn't always the best answer. A good example of this, I remember um, Dan Abbott when she was Shadow Home Secretary kind of getting lambasted by the right because she was asked the question, should all illegal immigrants be deported? Yes or no? Yes or no? I mean, surely all illegal immigrants should be deported. But the answer isn't yes or no because if you are here illegally in our country because you are a minor or you've been trafficked, then deporting you isn't going to be the right answer. Serious questions have complicated answers and being straight doesn't always mean being simplistic and not everything reduces to a yes or no answer. And Nick, you're right to say politicians should give good answers, but that's not always the simple answer. So I'm not sure we did give straight answer to Nick's question. Speak for yourself. Was it a straight answer? My straight answer was that there aren't always straight answers. That's clear. (laughs) (laughs) Clear clear as mud. Right. Thank you very much for all the questions and comments you've sent in. Remember, you can continue to email them in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. You can find us on our socials. You can find us on X, uh, Twitter, even after our views about Elon Musk. You can still hear us on X or TikTok or Instagram, where we're at Poll Currency or on YouTube, where you can watch longer clips of the show. That's all for this week. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.